Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host, Steve Shulwolf. Thanks, Phil. This is Steve Showolf, your host, and I am coming to you on New Year's Eve day. So farewell, good riddance, goodbye to 2020. And fittingly, if you hear some annoying background noise, it might be coming to you from Austin, Texas, where we're experiencing a little bit of a storm. So it's raining very appropriately uh, from a literary standpoint, rebirth, cleansing of 2020. So before I get to my guest, I want to thank all my listeners. I've gotten a decent amount of feedback recently, and it's always appreciated. And I know 2020 uh, presented a lot of challenges for folks. For me, it was getting uh, into this podcast and into a a new home in in Austin, Texas. Hopefully, for those of you who have stuck with us, uh, we've gotten a little bit better at what we're doing. We're learning every day, and we're looking forward to uh, 2021. I'm also looking forward to uh, discussing various topics today with our guest, Tom Presida. Tom is an actor who has 25 years of experience and credits on a wide range of projects, such as plays, commercials, indie films, national and international TV shows, including Friday Night Lights, Prison Break, even a telenovela, Por Amor Sin Lay. Tom also has his own film production company, Double Sky Films, where he creates thought-provoking and meaningful entertainment. He has one award-winning short film, A Ghost in Her Eyes, and another, Esperanza, which is about to hit the uh, festival circuit, such as it is uh, during uh, a pandemic. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks, Steve. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you uh, very much for being here. I know for some of you out there might be thinking, okay, I've listened to prior episodes where Steve has had discussions with attorneys and judges about different legal developments, COVID and the law, and in mediation in general, because after all, this is called a mediation podcast. So what the heck are we doing talking to an actor and a filmmaker? In fact, if you're thinking that, I know, Tom, you had, uh, I think, the same thought when I asked you to be on the show. It did cross my mind. <laughs> All right. And and hopefully by the end, this might make some sense, but we'll keep that out there a little bit of suspense because like I said, we're coming to folks on uh, New Year's Eve, or frankly, we're taping it on New Year's Eve. I think it'll be out there in uh, the World Wide Web in, uh, in 2021. And so clearly this has been not your, not your typical year. For me, it meant learning a lot of new things. Frankly, learning a little bit about podcasting, learning about family law. I was a commercial litigator, and as a mediator, I've done a fair amount of family law cases. I moved to Texas, so I learned more about Texas law, uh, about the psychology of dispute resolutions. And so 2020, for me, presented the opportunity with social distancing, my wife being a doctor, and so she goes into work every day. I've been at home trying to just 
generally learn. And so hopefully some of you who have listened to the podcast have benefited from that. Tom, what are some things 2020 has, has meant for you? Well, it's reminded me to be grateful for anything and everything that I have, including family and people and my health and health of those that I love. And you know, even getting up in the morning, going for a bike ride, just the littlest things I've learned to be grateful for all of it. I wish I could be that way all the time. Always be grateful. I think that's, that's the most important thing. And, and also I've learned really quickly, I've learned that being ambitious and, and having goals and more commas in your bank account, these are all good things, but nothing's more important than people and your relationships with them. No, absolutely. And one of the things that I am hopeful for is that while there's definitely been some some bad things about 2020, that I'm hopeful that going forward in my life, I can continue to do some of the things like you're saying, being grateful, continuing to try to learn new things, and hopefully still do that when we get back to, quote, normal, unquote, whenever that will be. But as it being New Year's Eve, I think we need to do the cliche. Tom, any New Year's resolutions? That's good. Um, yeah, you know, I had some last year that kind of got sidetracked by COVID. But I think just continue doing what I'm doing and get this new film through film festivals and promote it as much as I can. Work, I'm going to be working on another project once COVID kind of settles itself and we can start shooting again uh, safely. That's cost effective work on the next project, which I've already got the script written. Actually, the, it's, it was written by a different writer. Uh, she's very talented. And uh, travel, I want to travel some. And as far as my, my immediate goals, yeah, I just want to keep walking through the project that I'm working on and start an, another project. Well, those sound all like good resolutions. I, I'm going to have a follow-up question for you because uh, I posted on LinkedIn this morning, maybe my, my final post, and it, it already has gone a fair amount of reactions. So I thought maybe I'd weave this into it. And what I did is I had a post in which I provided a one word title and then a little bit background story about myself, but a one word title for what I would hang on 2020. So I looked this up, you know how the Chinese calendar has, they name all years. So under the Chinese calendar, 2020 was the year of the rat. So if you were going to name 2020 with one word 2020 is the year of what wow that's a that's a good one a lot of words come into mind most of which i probably can't say on a podcast um i'm gonna have to take a pass on that one maybe come back to you on it okay if i can remember okay well something clever okay well here was my story and it is a word i can't say on the podcast but if you're channeling samuel l jackson what i said (laughs) was 2020 was the year of the mf And I said, though, that the Chinese year, they repeat. So the year of the rat was also 1996. And so I told a story that this is the second year of the mf -er for me. The first year was 1998, because in 1998, I lived in Plovdiv, Bulgaria. I, I left a large law firm, and I went and I taught at a law school in Plovdiv, Bulgaria. I didn't know how to speak Bulgarian. And so the first few months, obviously, were very similar to my existence in 2020. I was at home. I was doing research myself. I was trying to learn new things, including the language. And I had been there about three months, and I had decided, 
I was ready to uh, take a trip to Safia, the capital. I had heard that the U.S. embassy there had gotten Westlaw, a research tool, but they didn't know how to use it. And so I arranged to train their staff in exchange for being able to use it to help some academic pursuits. So I was talking to some friends in Plovdiv who did not speak English, and they were explaining to me that when I got to Sofia, I needed to, unlike Plovdiv, I needed to buy bus tickets in advance. In Plovdiv, you'd get on the bus and you'd buy your ticket from the driver. Uh, apparently in Safia, you, you didn't do that. You had to go to a kiosk and buy tickets. So they also explained something else to me, but I didn't quite understand what they were trying to tell me. So I get to Safia and I buy my bus ticket. And like many places in Europe, you very rarely had an inspector who would come in to see whether you were not riding for free. So in the two years I lived in Bulgaria, it only happened once. And of course, it was my first visit to Safia. So I'm on the bus. I'd only been on the bus for 10 minutes. The inspector comes on to the bus, asked to see people's tickets, and I'm proudly clutching my ticket and I, I show it to him. And then all of a sudden, you know, his face gets very red. He's upset. And he says, Globa. And Globa means fine, not as in fine, okay. It means fine as in penalty. And he proceeds to start yelling at me. It's going quickly. I'm not really understanding everything. Next thing I know is he kicks me off the bus and he's trying to tell me that foreigners, they have to pay to ride the bus too. I'm trying to explain to him that I'm from Plovdiv and he doesn't believe me. And he really shouldn't because 99% of all foreigners who lived in Bulgaria in the 90s lived in, in Safia, the capital, or they at least had visited. So it was just he couldn't believe that, and I, I, I completely understand it. Now, in Bulgarian, every town has a pet swear word. And it's something that friends will say among their better friends. And I lived in Plovdiv, and the swear word of choice in Plovdiv was mina. And mina, I guess, loosely translates to mf -er. So this guy now is really just very upset at me, making an example of me. And again, now this is all in Bulgarian. I only been there a couple months and didn't speak very well. And, and so finally I said to him, Stigabe, Mina, which means shut up, MFR. And he stops. And there's this pause that was for me an eternity. And all of a sudden he breaks off this big smile. He pats me on the back and he says, Oh, when you said you were from Plovdiv, I just thought you were lying. I'm from Plovdiv, Mina. And he gave me his phone number. We later shared a pint. And so I wrote back to my friends in the state that this was a great country because I, I called basically an officer, you know, an MFR, and now I have a friend for life. So just like in China, where 1996 and 2020 is the year of the rat, in Steve Showolf's life, 1998 and 2020 is the year of the MFR. So I did use a swear. I've bought you lots of time. So any ideas for what you'd name 2020? I can't give it a word, but something did come to mind. And I'm going to relate it to my acting career and, and my experience. So, so some, and, I'll, and I'll try to be brief here. Sometimes when you're doing a scene, you're directing a scene, or you're acting in a scene that involves violence, that involves, and, and of course, you know, everything is staged and no one's really getting hurt. If it involves violence or a violent act, oftentimes there's a safe word 
that the actor uses. So like if things do get out of hand or they start to feel truly uncomfortable, then they just say that safe word and then the director knows to cut. Because you don't want to cut if they're just screaming and getting into the scene because that's how they're reacting to it and how that kind of the decisions that they're making as a choices they're making as an actor. But if they say the safe word, then you know, okay, something they felt uncomfortable, hand went in the wrong place or whatever, accidentally. Does that make sense? Well, sure. I, I hate to say that I think I can make a reference here. Is it kind of like the Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, you know, safe words that are talked about in that type oh, well, of sure. behavior? I, I, it, you're right. And I think 2020, we didn't know what the safe word was. I think that's fair. I, I kind of feel like I lived in a year in which I was saying what I thought was the safe word for the last six months, but apparently it didn't work. So 2020 was an event that was put upon us and we didn't know the safe word. <laughs> it's like being in a scene like that and you don't know what the safe word is and you just keep getting beat up and you don't really want to. Anyway, that's the only thing that came to my mind. No, I, lo- I, I love it. I guess if we combine the two stories, I would say Mina was the safe word, but few Americans knew that one. So it kept going for all of us. So I like it. I like it. Well, let's get back to, okay, hopefully people have enjoyed some of our uh, reminiscings of uh, 2020, but but they're still probably wondering uh, 15 minutes in, what does this really have to do with what Steve usually talks about? And I'll start out by saying that the pandemic has dramatically changed a lot of aspects of life. And not surprisingly, it's also impacted the practice of law. And everything now is being done via Zoom. Trials are being done remotely. Hearings are being done remotely. So I had a podcast episode, I guess more traditional for my line of work with Matt Fisher. Matt Fisher is a national trial attorney, and and he talked about some of the difficulties for trial attorneys in this era and basically said, look, you have to throw away your playbook. And so it, it started me thinking, and I had another podcast guest who uh, does litigation consulting, and she has written that lawyers really need to expand their horizon and talk to people who previously they they wouldn't have even have thought to get assistance for what the new requirements are. And so lawyers are are complaining about Zoom trials because they understandably feel there's difficulty keeping jurors' attention. There's anecdotal stories of jurors who are doing work while they're a juror in a trial. And so this is obviously very concerning to lawyers and, frankly, to society in terms of uh, dispensing justice. So I guess my first question to you, you've done theater, you've done TV. And so what advice would you give? And, And this isn't really asking about legal, but what advice would you give to people who are now professionally required to present their arguments and their evidence in a compelling way, essentially over TV, by using Zoom. And so what aspects of dealing with a medium like TV or Zoom do you think you might have some insight to uh, help practitioners out there who are concerned about their ability to make sure the judge or jurors are understanding and following and still interested in what they have to say. 
Okay. All right. That's a, that's a great question. Most important thing when you're doing a video presentation is the sound. You have to make sure that your audience can hear you. Every consonant, vowel, schwa, whether you have to enunciate or get a better microphone, do what you got to do. Make sure they can hear you. Because if they can hear you but they can't see you for a second, that can work. But if they can't hear you, then it doesn't matter what you're doing visually. So obviously you want your visuals to work as well. You want to have a good camera and a good connection, of course. But I would say stand up. Don't sit behind your desk and give a presentation or an argument or whatever. Stand up as you would, I would assume, if you were doing it live. And you might even want to rehearse it a bit. Go ahead and do like a quick 30-second test and make sure your lighting looks good and make sure your face can be seen and there's no shadows on your face because you don't want it to be a distraction. That's the thing. It isn't, you don't have to look like a movie star, but you don't want how you look to be a distraction. And they're looking at, oh, that's a weird-looking shirt. Oh, what a polka dot. What is that polka dot? You don't want them to get into that. You want them to just focus on what you're doing and what you're saying and perhaps your body language, which brings up another point as far as your body language. So that's why I would say stand up. And wear your tie, wear your suit, wear your shoes, even though they might not be able to see them in the shot. Do what you would normally do. I had an old, my very first, my high school drama teacher, when we were doing, when we were rehearsing, going through the few weeks of rehearsal before we would perform, he would make us wear the shoes that we were going to be wearing as a character. Even though we didn't have our costumes yet, he said, okay, you're going to be a, you're going to be wearing some heeled shoes because you're an attorney in this, in this show. And I would have to walk around with heeled shoes with jeans and a t-shirt on because it changes your, your energy. So do what you do, wear your suit, get ready, shave, do your hair up. Obviously, you're going to be seen on camera, so you're going to be doing that anyway. But get yourself completely in the moment as if you were actually there in front of those people. Then I would check the frame of your camera. Make sure you don't walk out of the frame. You don't walk out of the, the viewing area of your camera. I don't know if you need to do close-up of just from your chest up to where you can only see your face, or maybe you should pull back and where they can see your whole body. If you're going to be using your body language, if you're going to be presenting something where you need to, like, use your hands, or I don't know if you use any sort of props or items in an argument. I don't know. But if you are, obviously pull that camera back. Make sure your background isn't distracting. Normally, when I do auditions at home, I use a very plain, boring background. It's one color. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a curtain. It's a dark blue. It's completely not distracting. And because, again, you don't want people to be going, what is that on his shelf? Oh, look at that. That's a, I have that book. I've seen it happen on TV. I'm watching a person on TV, and I'm looking at what's going on behind them rather than what they're saying. So no distractions. Have them focus on your voice and your image of what you're doing. I would also stay away from getting really technical now. Staying away from clothing that has pinstripes or zigzags. Not only is that distracting visually, but the camera sometimes gets the, I mean, just the, the resolution of your camera may not be strong enough to pick them up and it starts to, starts to distort those lines and that can be distracting. Those are some technical things I would say, but mostly important, just stand up, get on your feet, make that presentation. And don't think about you're talking to a camera, know your audience. Who's out there? I don't know if you can see them. I don't know how that works or not. Different courtrooms have the setup differently. One of the concerns about effectively doing jury trials is attorneys deal with evidence. And normally, if you're live, Your Honor, can I approach the witness and show them this document? So what we're doing now in the age of Zoom is you can share your screen. But what I have found from making presentations that have PowerPoint is 
it can get very confusing where you have different cameras. Usually there's a camera on the judge, there's a camera on the jury, there's a camera on the attorney, but now you're introducing evidence and documents. And so that becomes difficult. And so what I've heard, and I'm sure this is similar in your field, is, you know, like you said, practice. Practice isn't just the substance of your argument. It's really the logistics of how you're going to present something effectively through this medium. Absolutely. Do you hold up the document to the camera? Do you show it? That's something that you have to see how that works, how that looks. It sounds like you guys want to Based on what you're telling me, you certainly want to do more of a long shot. And what I mean by that is you don't want to just be a close-up of your head. You want to see your body because you may have to pick up a piece of evidence, whether it's a document or a, some kind of an artifact. And the worst thing you can do is reference a prop. Again, talking as an actor, but if I'm using a prop during an audition and you can't see it, that's really distracting. That's very distracting because people are going to go, what, what is he, what, what, what's going on where I can't see? I'm going to lamely interject here because I know very, very few things about the rules of drama, but I would say the opposite is true too, right? It's the Chekhov's gun, right? If you do introduce something, an exhibit, you better tie it into your, to your argument because I think people are used to, uh, as Chekhov said, if, if there's a gun, it's got to be used eventually, right? If you show the gun, you got to use it. Yes. Well, this is all very good stuff. And I think, again, I'm biased here because I'm the one who came up with the idea. But I think all of these technical tips are things that lawyers, frankly, are thinking about for the first time. And by collaborating with those who have had to think about lighting, have had to think about framing, have had to think about timing, about what to wear because the camera does or doesn't like certain things, all of those are things that you have thought about for years. And so in answering the question of what can an actor help in the days of COVID to lawyers, I think all of those points, even if lawyers can independently think of them, we're kind of reinventing the wheel where there are some sources out there that can help us adapt to the new normal and to uh, our Zoom universe. So my two follow-up questions on this is going to be, when we're dealing with the medium like Zoom and we're concerned about getting people's attention. I think you made a great point. The best way probably to keep and get people's attention is to be interested in it yourself. I think people are not going to be motivated by somebody who was like, oh, I've got to give this argument on Zoom, or they themselves are distracted by their dog or their children in the in the background. That clearly are true issues that people are dealing with right now, but that can't distract. If you're distracted, then clearly a judge or jury is going to be distracted. So any tips on how you can really grab somebody's attention right away through Zoom? Any tips on that? Yeah. And again, I, I don't think necessarily the method in which you're delivering the story, whether it's live in person or on Zoom or over a phone or whatever. But I think that, again, my opinion is you want to start strong. So ensure that your first a page or paragraph or sentence or whatever it is, your, your first point that you make establishes something important. It creates conflict or maybe even generates mystery and makes people go, oh, this is interesting. I want to listen to what they have to say because you've established something that's generated mystery or, uh, like I said, created conflict. Better yet, 
If you can establish all three of those things, establish a scene, create conflict, or generate mystery, if you can do that in the first, I'm going to say, 30 seconds, great. That's a great technique because storytelling, again, in my opinion, is facts plus passion. That's storytelling. And I think great trial attorneys would tell you that's the exact same thing that they do. I think that those are great words of advice. I think the one thing that lawyers might say is the mystery part can be a little disconcerting because you don't want the judge or jury to be living with this thought of, oh, I don't know how this is going to end in a legal argument in the same way you might with drama. So I, I guess I would say I think you want to probably try to dispel the mystery as quickly as you can. But I think in general, the other techniques that you have suggested, I I, I definitely think are transferable. We've been talking a lot about storytelling and you said you don't really know much about the law. I don't know much about TV and your world, but I have heard that the principles of drama and storytelling go all the way back to Aristotle. Is, Is that true? Probably even before that. I mean, you can go even further back if you wanted to, I'm sure. But yeah, I mean, I think that modern, modern theater can be traced back to, to Aristotle when we're talking about exposition and inciting incidents and, and rising action, climax and denouement, falling action and resolution. I mean, sure, yeah, I mean, there, there are so many. I mean, even, you know, maybe cavemen surrounding the campfire talking about how they killed the tiger. Who knows, they embellished or they reenacted something and then perhaps goes back even that further just but but again it's basically communication i mean they're just communicating something and i guess i left that out storytelling is facts plus passion plus communication and that's storytelling Okay, well, now I've got this image in my head of like a cave drawing where perhaps the fish that was depicted wasn't quite as big as the caveman drew it. A little bit of embellishing probably uh, yeah. has, has been going on for uh, hundreds of thousands of years. As a lawyer, one of, I think, the most important yet underrated traits is the ability to self-edit to work hard for a few days to prepare a brief that's going to be filed in court, sleep on it, look at it the next day and realize this section is really good, but this other section, I know what I'm trying to say, but I don't think this brief does it as well as it can. And so you you have to then go back and see if you can't make your own product better. And it strikes me that that's probably true in all professions, but in particular, I think in your field where you have a script or you're working on a project and something that maybe you thought initially was going to work just is falling a little bit flat. What are some tips for folks out there to try to divorce themselves from their prior effort and work that they've put into a project up to a particular point and try to objectively determine whether the ultimate consumer, the audience, is going to feel the emotion that they're supposed to feel. Yeah, it's a great point. You actually made a good point by sleeping on it, giving yourself a day or two, don't think about it, go for a bike ride, go do something else, and then come back to it. That's really healthy to do it that way. That's the first thing I would tell anyone, and, you, and you've already mentioned it. The next thing I would say is get someone you trust to give you their opinion. And even go so much as, I mean, again, this is what I would do. I would go so much as have them 
read it and then have them read it to you and you listen to it. Well, how they say it, just let them read it. That's been helpful for me. But when I say trusted opinion, I mean someone who's going to give it to you straight, not just someone who's going to tell you what you want to hear. Oh, everything's so great. Someone's going to give you their, their honest, trusted opinion. I would assume in your case, it might be a, a, a fellow attorney or a paralegal. I, I, you know, it would be up to you to decide. It could even be a layperson, somebody outside of your business. I would sometimes I just give it to a friend who's got nothing to do with theater or acting or they don't know anything about this stuff. And I, and I will let them. So I might solicit more than one person. That's always a good thing to do as long as you can trust them. You got to certainly put your ego at the door when you're doing this kind of thing. I'm trying to think of anything else that might be pertinent. You mentioned something about, yes, what am I trying to say? I would look at every single scene. Okay, again, talking about what I'm doing here. Look at every single scene, even every single moment. And I ask myself, what am I trying to say in this scene and in this moment? And, okay, once I determine what that is, then I ask myself, is it clear? Is it clear? Okay, and then I'll say, okay, great. Why am I saying it? What is the point? Okay, great. I'm trying to make this point. I'm making the point, but why am I saying it? What's the purpose of it? And is the purpose clear? Does it drive the story? Does it drive the narrative? And if I can't really answer those questions, then I need to either rewrite that scene or I need to omit it. That's how I look at that. That might go back to the trusted opinion people and say, I may ask them, what do you think I'm trying to say in this scene? Or what are you getting out of this moment? You may ask them what they think of this particular scene and they go, I don't understand it or it doesn't make any sense to me. That's good information. I'm smiling a little bit because I don't know whether this is going to come together for everybody else. But for me, we talked about storytelling and mystery, and we had the great mystery as to what an actor could possibly add to uh, a discussion on mediation. And I would say, I would submit that at one level, that's what a mediator does. What a mediator is, is somebody that you trust to be objective to be able to analyze the story you're telling and to give it to you straight in terms of what difficulties you may have if ultimately you don't settle a case and you're forced to ask a judge or a juror to decide between your story and your opponent's story. So in some ways, I think if we're going to beat this analogy to death, a mediator is somewhat of a a film critic in that it's a trusted third party that is looking at the arguments. And while I don't help people rewrite their screenplays, what I try to do in certain types of mediation is to ask questions about the strengths and weaknesses of both their narrative and the other side's narrative. And so sometimes in the law, If you're hearing a story from your opponent, opposing counsel, maybe it doesn't resonate as well as if a third party comes in and tries to at least ask those questions. But in in many ways, I am presented with two very different stories. And I'm not a judge. It doesn't really matter whether I believe one side or the other. What I try to do is to help people understand why they face litigation risks that, at the end of the day, a judge or a juror might think that the other side's story, frankly, whether true or not, is more compelling. And that if they're in that situation, they might want to consider whether they really want to go to trial. 
So in the spirit of that, I think you mentioned that you sometimes to pitch a project, you're working with financiers or you're collaborating with somebody else. And so if you're working on a project where you think, you know what, I just think this needs to go in a different direction. What are ways that you try to use in having those discussions with the other people involved? Because as a mediator, again, there's no magic sauce. I can't coerce parties into doing anything. Mediation is all about the parties ultimately having self-determination and and making their own choices. But I I at least want to to try to make sure that if their choice is to walk away from a settlement and go to trial, that they fully considered all the issues. And so part of it is to try to say, you know, I don't know that this part of your argument, this part of your story is as strong as possible. So if you're working on a project and there's a scene and you're trying to talk to a co-writer or a producer to say, look, I'm not sure that this is working. Are there any tips, you know, and this wouldn't be necessarily for practitioners, but it would be for folks like me, mediators and other third parties who are trying to make sure that, like you said, you need to leave your ego at the door. But I imagine both actors and lawyers are two uh, folks who sometimes do have ego. So uh, how do you work around that? Certainly, there's lots of egos, to be certain of that. So I probably almost repeat myself by saying, what is it that I want exactly in this scene? And what do they want in this scene? And then, okay, who has the better argument? What, which one is more compelling? If, if I've done my homework, and that's really important to, before you step into that conversation, to do your homework and say this scene or the way we're doing this, the objective here in this scene is so important because of what's happening in scene seven or scene 11. We have to have this. Got to be here. Now, I've done my homework. If I take out this scene, I'm going to have to take out scene 11, per se, which is basically a counterbalance to that scene, or it's sort of a reinforcement of that scene. Now the whole story starts to fall apart if I start pulling these pieces out, or if I start making adjustments to them, major adjustments, per se. And sometimes I lose the argument, and sometimes I win. Clearly, to me, in my experience, it seems like the person who has the most passion usually wins the argument. But not always, because you still have to have your facts. you got to have your facts. So if you got your facts and you've got your clear focus on exactly what's happening in that scene and why it's happening, and again, I'm repeating myself, but it's important, then that's the best choice. And you might be wrong, and they might be right, and they might convince you. But like you said, at least you've, I guess as a mediator, you've given them something to consider. And I think to try to extend the analogy a little bit more, your point about knowing where certain things fit in the big picture, and I think you even said you've done your homework, you know, that's something that I think parties are looking for in a mediator, somebody who has done the homework, who knows all about the case. Now, it's difficult as a mediator to know as much as the attorneys. They've been living with the case sometimes for years, and you've had, as a mediator, a couple of days to prepare. I always invite the litigants who I mediate with to give me as much information as, as they want, and hopefully they trust me as somebody 
who's going to do the homework so that when we're talking about a particular issue, it might not be you need this in scene five because it reappears in scene nine, but you know, it might be somebody making a, a legal argument glossing over the fact that they can't even get to that point if the court rejects a factual argument that's in dispute. And so let's talk about that dispute because that's really where this case might turn. So I think knowing when to focus the lens tightly on the subject and talk about something very specific, but then also to take a step back and look at the entire production and say, parties sometimes lose the forest through the trees. And and as a mediator, I think you have to help both at the detailed level and at the big picture level. So it seems like some similarities there. That's a great point. When to go macro, when to go micro is also a very important aspect of storytelling and, and productions. That's awesome. The funny thing about I've learned with podcasting is I'm sure one thing about making a film or just even being an actor is nobody sets out to make a bad film, right? But there are some bad films. So when do you kind of know? We laughed at the beginning of this podcast about whether or not this was going to come together, right? Do these themes have enough commonality that so somebody who has listened to my conversations with judges and and attorneys would go, you know, I didn't necessarily think a discussion with an actor uh, would provide some insights, but hopefully we've done that. And as I'm sitting here right now, I think we have. But you never know. So how do you kind of deal with that nagging question? Uh, Because lawyers have it all the time prior to preparing for an argument. I think I've prepared enough. I think I've presented a compelling argument. But it's just always difficult to know how it's going to be received. It is a speculative business. Uh, uh, As far as filmmaking goes, you do not know if it's going to be successful or not. I think that if you've got a good story and you've got good people on all sides of you, in front of the camera, behind the camera, and at home, I think you have a reasonable chance of success. But there are always going to be people that do not like my story, uh, my production, and there are going to be people that love it. I'm sure as an attorney, there are certain protocols and rules and stuff that you follow. So at least maybe you may, you may not win or you may not get what you want. At least you know you made the effort and you did it correctly. I can always feel comfortable so far with the films that I've made as a filmmaker, that maybe someone doesn't want to see a time travel romance. It's just not their bag. That's just frilly for them. Okay. But the people that do want to see it uh, are going to look at it and, and get some enjoyment. From this podcast, I'm hoping that attorneys, litigators, mediators such as yourself can take maybe one or two things that I said and go, oh, yeah, I never thought of it that way. That's good. Yes, I, I don't want to generate mystery, like you mentioned earlier, but... I do want to create conflict when I open up my argument. So, great, I'll remember that. Who knows? They may know all these things I'm already telling them. They may be way ahead of me. Or they may get something out of it. As a filmmaker, too, if somebody can sit in the theater and not be bored and watch my production and go, oh, I got something out of that. Yeah, I can relate to one of those scenes. Okay. And I brought them a little bit of distraction and happiness from whatever they're dealing with at home. Well, I think I, I achieved my goal, and I can live with that personally. I'm hopeful that our listeners enjoyed and perhaps picked up a pointer or two. And and I very much appreciate you taking uh, the time, especially here on New Year's Eve day. So I'm going to give you the last word and opportunity. Tell us a little bit about, I think, Esperanza. Is that your uh, most recent film? And and how's that going? Here's your opportunity to give it a quick plug. Okay. So yeah, Esperanza is a short film. We completed it 
I'm submitting it to film festivals, have submitted to film festivals. We've already been accepted to one of them already. Probably film festival will start in the summer and we'll hopefully go on a journey and get into a lot of festivals and, and who knows where that might go. It's a great story. It's a good human story. There's a lot of hope in it. There's a lot of change for the better. I'm excited about it. Yeah, I guess that, that kind of sums that up. Well, change and hope, something for the better, all sound like appropriate themes to be discussing on New Year's Eve 2020. So, Tom, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, wish you and uh, your family a uh, happy and healthy uh, New Year and, and look forward to being able to do these podcasts, you being able to do film festivals, not only remotely. And I know some of the uh, trial lawyers out there are, are looking forward to normalcy. But until then, very much appreciated all your time and insights today. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure, really. And same to you and have a good New Year's and, and all the best to you and your family. Great. Thank you. Well, Phil, let's take us home and end the podcast for uh, 2020. This is Steve Showolf thanking all of you for listening to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. This closes the door on Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening.